We're going to look this morning into Psalm 119. I won't uh, belabor all of the introduction that uh, Chris McKnight has done a far better job of doing. But I want to uh, remind you that uh, this is, or should be, one of your favorite chapters in the Bible. It is the longest chapter in the Bible. There are a number of, Ken and I taught this in Sunday school a couple of years ago, and um, as you begin to look at the symmetry of this poetry, it's an amazingly complex act of writing, and uh, it's beautiful in every respect. But first, Henry David Thoreau is best known as the author of Walden, a 100,000-word memoir, how he lived in a cottage near Walden Pond for a couple of years. The book gave Thoreau a reputation as the father of environmentalism, and it contains his various philosophies on respecting nature and living self-sufficiently off the land making him an icon both for survivalists and environmentalists. However, despite criticizing society for destroying the environment, Thoreau once neglected a campfire and set half the woods on fire near Concord and burned half of it down. Before Walden launched his career as the father of environmentalism, the locals referred to him by another nickname, Woodsburner. But this was before his journey of self-discovery, so maybe burning a significant amount of America's natural wilderness was the event that turned his life around. Except that Thoreau admitted in his journal to feeling no remorse and bragged about the glorious spectacle of the fire. As for his self-reliance philosophy, Thoreau didn't really earn top marks for that either. For starters, the land that he lived on was owned by Thoreau's mentor, Ralph Waldo Emerson. While writing about the importance of solitude at Walden Pond, Thoreau would run into town and have people cook dinner for him. And before heading back into the woods, he would dump his laundry at his mother's house. <laughs> so maybe Thoreau's philosophy wasn't about total gun-toting, off-the-grid survivalism, but you would think that the author of Walden would be able to fold his own underwear, wouldn't you? <laughs> We, we call that hypocrisy, good label. <laughs> and the Bible calls it double-mindedness. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 119, verse 113. This is the stanza known as Samech, which is uh, right to left, <laughs> the Hebrew character roughly equivalent to our S. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Sustain me according to your word that I may live. And do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes. For their deceitfulness is useless. You have removed all the wickedness, wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. 
Fear isn't always a bad thing. In this case, this stanza is a prayer for relief. With the exception of one verse, the entire stanza, each verse is its own separate prayer. The prayer is a petition for deliverance in the present time, a prayer for future eternal deliverance, and praise for God's perfect justice in his eternal past. So there's four points this morning. Loving God's law is a chief distinction. Leaving the battle to God is a chief strategy. Letting God handle the unredeemed glorifies the chief justice. And leaning on God's word is our chief source of life. Does that sound familiar, Ken? (laughs) Same point. (laughs) I apologize if you were in that Sunday school class two years ago. There is some new stuff here, though, so stay awake. I want to refer you to the New Testament, to 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 to 10. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to, just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to, to you who are afflicted, And to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. I want you to bear that passage in mind as we look at the psalm. Written maybe by David or more likely by Daniel, as Pastor McKnight says. And I love that thought because I love the quality of this poetry. That first verse, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. And looking at the Hebrew, I would say you could translate that. I utterly hate hypocritical people who say they worship God, but act as if they don't. However, I love your Torah. I love your word. I love your law. So first point, genuine love for God's law is a distinction that identifies believers. Is hypocrisy a problem? Is it even a sin? Would you raise your hand if you've never been a hypocrite? We all have, haven't we? There is a difference in the world as we look at the population. It seems that increasingly there are many people who don't fear God at all. In this post-Christian culture, they seem to have no concern about God whatsoever. They place themselves on the throne of their lives and they are an insult to God's sovereignty, to his power, to his authority. These atheists and unbelievers are enemies of God, but they're honest. They're not hypocritical about it. They hate God. But there is also another group also destined for the lake of fire, eternal damnation. They aren't so foolish that they deny God's power, but they refuse to surrender their personal sovereignty to God. 
This group can be confused with believers. They can look a lot like us. They may pretend to worship him. They may belong to a group that pretends to worship him. This group is most dangerous because they can look like us. In ancient Israel, if you think about it, it was harder to deny his power. If you were a witness to the parting of the Red Sea, if you were a witness to the miracles of the Old Testament, where he'd heard his sto- the stories of his supernatural workings in the lives of the children of Israel, in your own parents' or grandparents' lives, the evidence of his majesty and authority are very clear to you. Today, his majesty and his authority are presented in the canon of Scripture, in the Word of God, in the Bible. But whether you're talking about distinguishing God's people from the ancient pagans or today's nominal Christians, the method for distinguishing them is the same. It's the love of the Word of God. In ancient Israel, God's people loved and respected his law. They studied God's word, they memorized God's word, and they attempted obedience to it. In our day, this is still the easiest way to distinguish between fake Christians and real Christians. Real Christians will state with the psalmist, I hate the hypocrisy of play-acting love for God and his word because I truly love the word of God. It is a good idea to pray as the psalmist does in Psalm 119.36, incline my heart to your testimonies. What grace it is that even if my heart is not inclined to his word, he gives me a mechanic for asking him to incline my heart to his word. Even if I don't naturally love the word of God, He's given me instruction and permission to ask him to cause that in me. That's grace. I incline my heart to your testimonies. In uh, verse 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. Leaving the battle to God is a chief strategy for life. (laughs) Leaving the battle to God is a good way to go, regardless of the challenge or the threat. You are my secret hiding place, and you shield me from harm. I wait and hope for your instructions. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Repeatedly in God's word, we find this assurance that God protects his children from enemies. When I hide myself in him... I resign from my own defense and defer my defense to the greatest power in the universe. That's not a bad way to go. Of course, the greatest dangers to my life in Christ come not from human enemies, do they? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, from Ephesians 6. The greatest danger to the born-again believer comes from Satan and his minions and from my own flesh, right? We have seen the enemy and they is us. If you're old enough to remember that, whether King David or the prophet Daniel or another psalmist wrote it, it's likely that the psalmist of this stanza had real human enemies that were after him. Some Christians do too. 
We read about that daily. But whether the threat is physical or spiritual, the solution to the problem is still the same. When I hide myself in God, I must wait for his deliverance while I seek strength in his word. That's where I will find his instructions. That doesn't mean we won't have spiritual enemies or even human enemies that we need protection from. But the psalmist prescribes a strategy for dealing with conflict that rises above our human instincts, above our human powers, above our human perceptions. If God's omniscient, he knows tomorrow. If God is omniscient, he knows what's going to happen to me and all the potentials that could be and aren't, and all the potentials that could be and are, what a comfort. (laughs) As I seek God's word for strength and reassurance, I also seek God's heart and prayer. I ask him for protection and deliverance, and I wait for my marching orders from my commander-in-chief. He rules from his throne in the third heaven. None of the enemy's tactics is hid from him, No form of warfare is beyond the reach of his unlimited power. The prescription here is very comparable to the Ephesians' instructions to born-again believers. And the psalmist says, he waits for the word. In Ephesians 6, Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God. But our strategy is still similar. As we are to hold the sword of the Spirit in the Bible, we are instructed not to run, not to attack, Not to sneak attack, not to ambush, not to gossip, not to malign. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. When you think about dealing with enemies, can you think of a greater threat than that threat faced by the Son of God in the Garden of Gethsemane? In prayer, waiting for the Word of God. Knowing at the hands of human enemies... He was to be tortured, knowing in the threats that he faced, but his knowledge of God's word was complete. His trust in his father was total. And yet he had to endure that wait, those hours in the Garden of Gethsemane that we read with such pain. Fervent in prayer, anticipating incomprehensible pain, and yet waiting deliverance. He did not accuse. He did not attack. He did not fear the hand of man. He feared only the wrath of God. And he waited. Even his strategy was to leave his enemies to the Father. Think about that. Do I have to attack? Is it my job to attack? Or to leave them to the Father. We come now to verse 115. The only departure from the prayer. As you see the psalmist literally turn and face someone else. Right? And he says, depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of God. He's not talking to God there. And I would say, in literal translation, get away from me, you evildoers, so that I can be obedient to my God. The verse is such a stark contrast to the rest of the stanza. 
Each verse is a portion of prayer addressed to the Heavenly Father, but not this one. In this prayer, we see the psalmist turn from his Torah and his prayerful posture to face the distractions in his life. He turns to speak and give testimony to his greater need. Depart from me, evildoers. It's an imperative. It's a command. And it's a noun of direct address. You, evildoers, go away. Depart from me. That's a command. Leave me. No question he's talking to someone besides God, and he takes action to eliminate that force that would keep him from God's word. Maybe they wanted him to go drinking and chasing women. Or maybe they just wanted him to go fishing in the Jordan River. Maybe the evil was obvious and awful, or maybe it had the innocent appearance of daily routine life. Either way, the psalmist's direct command cannot be misconstrued. The evildoers presented an obstacle to his time in reading and meditating on God's word. See, what, what makes the actions evil is not their intrinsic evil. It is that they are a distraction. That's who the evildoers are. The things that would distract me from obedience to God's word. The fact that the enterprise itself was not evil, but the fact that whatever that enterprise was, it distracted from God's word. The harshness of the psalmist's command is directed at this aspect, at this distraction, not at the depth of evil evil that the evildoers proposed. Now, distraction can be a real danger, can it? There will be people who die on our highways this year distracted while texting or using their cell phones. You can stare off the highway at a car parked on the shoulder of the road, and if you're doing highway speed, you can bring yourself into great danger. Distraction is dangerous. Distraction could be evil. So often, distractions to God's word look so very innocent. Uh, For me, they are many, and they're easy to name. Football, motorcycles, hunting, Fox News, Glenn Beck. What is it for you? Text messages? Facebook? Secular music? A romantic novel? Antiques? Gardening? (laughs) See, none of these are inherently evil activities. But the depth of evil is not earned by the nature of the activity. But due to what the activity is distracting me from, to deal with them, I should follow the psalmist's lead here. I should recognize the evil distraction. I should speak testimony against that distraction and to the greater value of God's word. And I should take action to keep the distraction away. Turn. Turn from the distraction. And back to the prayer. Verse 116, sustain me according to your word that I may live and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. 
Let me wean upon your word so that I may live. Please do not let me be put to shame because of my dependence upon my assured hope. And I'm going to lean on the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians for a great explanation, exposition of that. In Philippians 1, 19 and 20, he says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. If I lean on a table or if I lean on this pulpit, I'm depending that this pulpit will hold me up. That's an act of faith, dependence. If like when I was a young teen, you lean back in that high back antique chair of your mom's, you reach a tipping point in there somewhere where it's pretty dangerous, isn't it? (laughs) That's probably not good dependence. Having faith in that antique chair was really not a good idea from the very beginning, right? Rocking back in that chair was dangerous. But if you lean on the word of God as the psalmist says he is, your faith is worthwhile. The word is worthy. It will support you, sustain you, and give you what you need to keep on keeping on. Your faith in God's word will keep the hope of glory uppermost in your mind without God's word to sustain the believer. It can get kind of scary, can it? Without the word of God, how do you face the newspaper or Yahoo News or wherever you go? Depend on the word of God. Now here's an admission. It's a lot easier for me to depend on the Word of God for eternity than it is for this afternoon or tomorrow? Is it for you? There will be lunch and a football game and I hope a short nap, right? But I think about that. I worry about I can fret and lose a night's sleep anticipating a meeting with weak human beings when dependence on the word of God would reveal them for the non-threat that they are. Why would humanity ever frighten me? I won't fear death. I am not fearful of death. I hope you're not either. But I can lose sleep over stupid human horizontal stuff. To be sustained is to be held up through illness, persecution, disaster, or Democrat presidents, as well as to be sustained from this life to eternity. I apologize for the politics, I take it back. It's a good strategy to trust him in both, with eternity and with time. In verse 117, uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually continually, good word, uphold me that I may be saved so that I may pay attention to your laws continually. So you ever get confused between the, the difference between 
continuous and continual? Well, here's your diction lesson. Continuous is continuing without stopping. No lapse. Whereas the dictionary says continual is defined as an action that is repeated frequently in the same way. Hmm. So when the sprinkler does this, it's continual, right? It's over here, then it's over there, it's over here, it's over there. Repeated in the same way. If God upholds me through the border crisis and through the Islamic State and Second Amendment threats and even through my own death, it is to what purpose? Why is he doing that? Whether prospering or suffering, whether living or dead, whether in time or eternity, the great opportunity before me is to use the time and attention I have to regard God's word repeatedly in the same way. Repetition of God's word is not busy work. Here's another admission. For years, folks in the church would recommend and propose these daily Bible reading plans that you, know, you read the Bible in a year. And I always said, no, I don't, you know, I'm afraid if I do that, somewhere in there, three or four months in, it's going to feel like drudgery. I don't want to feel that way about the Word of God. That was my excuse. But under the conviction of an innocent conversation with an elder about a year and a half ago, I found out about one of these programs you can put on your phone that has you read the Bible in a year, and I did that in a historical sequence and found passages and sections of the Bible I've been in many hundreds of times, some of them thousands of times, were new and fresh and interesting and vital. And I discovered what great feeding that gave my soul. Started over about a month ago, doing it again. You know I'm in numbers right now? You read numbers? <laughs> and I'm seeing stuff I don't remember. Repetition, done again and again, and in the same way in worship. Through and through, over and over, cleansed by the daily washing in the Word of God. In verse 118, you have rejected all those who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. This is a tough subject. Is it tough for you? It's tough for me. Letting God handle the unredeemed glorifies the chief justice of the universe. You have abandoned all the people who have gone astray from your statutes because their betrayal is deceitful. We're going to do this in Romans tonight. <laughs> the, the fate of the perishing is a difficult subject for us believers. But I ask you some questions about it. Who is man that we would question the justice of God? The Bible is pretty clear that all will not be saved eternally. Not everybody goes to heaven. Some will perish, and they are eternally accountable for that error that causes them to perish. This is settled theological fact. God's sovereign election of some 
left others to pursue their own lines, lies and betrayals. It is a good thing for me to accept this fact and to stop questioning God's perfect justice. That's one thing, to sit at a dinner party and have someone say, well, but, you know, wouldn't God save everybody? What they're really saying is, shouldn't God save everybody? It's something else to pursue that theologically and to full-blown universalism, God saves all. It's contrary to the word of God. It doesn't say that. But as you consider this kind thought, as you weep for the perishing, I hope you weep for the perishing. It is tragic. You should. But as you consider this kind thought, Shouldn't God save all? Do you also wish every single one of them saved? Nero? Adolf Hitler? Bin Laden? The murderers who are murdering Christian children in Iraq? See, We want justice, don't we? (laughs) We are encouraged by justice. We must have justice. The psalmist reasserts God's sovereign right to judge, to elect, and to condemn. And he accurately places the blame for their loss on themselves. Here's what the Prince of Preachers, Charles Hadley Spurgeon, had to say about that verse. For their deceit is falsehood. They call it far-seeing policy, but it is absolute falsehood, and it shall be treated as such. Ordinary men call it clever diplomacy, but the man of God calls a spade a spade and declares it to be falsehood and nothing less, for he knows that it is so in the sight of God. Men who err from the right road invent pretty excuses with which to deceive themselves and others, and so quiet their consciences and maintain their credits But their mask of falsehood is too transparent. God treads down falsehoods. They are only fit to be spurned by his feet and crushed into the dust. How horrified must those be who have spent all their lives in contriving a confectionery religion and then see it all trodden down, trodden upon by God as a sham which cannot endure. They are accountable for their foolish error. And then in verse 119, you have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. And our fourth point, leaning on God's word is our chief source of life. You have put an end to all the wicked people throughout the earth like you would rubbish. That's a good translation of the Hebrew. Therefore, I dearly love your upright testimonies. You see the contrast? Rubbish and the unerring testimony of God himself. In the passage just after the one that Blair read for us, 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The great hope, the great encouragement of justice is he made a way. He provided grace and mercy. You know the difference between grace and mercy? Grace is getting what I don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. And he gave me both in the cross. In the last verse of our passage, my flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. My flesh trembles literally would say, my, hand, my hair stands on end. You had that happen? Feel the hair on the back of your neck stand up? That's fear. In great fear of you, and I am afraid of failing your judgments. So let's talk about a healthy fear of God. So often, weak theology will try to make the fear of God and love of his word into lesser qualities. Fear is changed to respect, love, and awe. You heard this? Well, God really doesn't mean fear God. It means respect him, you know, love him. No, I beg to differ. It means to fear him. Love for God's word is changed to an infrequent dose of the Bible, rather, or if any, rather than a continual diet of Scripture. Fear is a healthy thing. Fear of God is a worshipful thing. If this God we're talking about has the authority and power to judge and condemn, to give life and to haul the trash, shouldn't we have a healthy fear of him even as his children? I love to think about God being the father that you can crawl up in his lap for a kind word and a cuddle. And I do. But like my earthly dad, who you didn't want to cross, obedience to the father and understanding who he is and being fearful of his wrath is good, sane orientation. That's right side up. That's thinking. None other than Charles Darwin has attempted, was attempting to point the similarities between man and animals. He pointed to the expression of fear as something the human species has in common with the animal kingdom. He described the response to fear this way. Fear is often preceded by astonishment and is so far akin to it that both lead to the senses of sight and hearing being instantly aroused. In both cases, the eyes and the mouth are widely open and the eyebrows raised. In both cases, the eyes and the mouth are widely open and the eyebrow raised. The frightened man at first stands like a statue, motionless and breathless or crouches down if he's ex attempting to escape observation. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. <laughs> when they were aware of their sin, what'd they do? They hid. 
Was that the wrong thing to do? Well, the right thing to do would have been not to sin, right? But is it instinctive for us to fear God? Yes, sir, it is. If you don't fear God, why would you fear for those lost souls doomed to hell? I'm so grateful that God is a gracious and merciful God. I'm so grateful he's given me a love for his word. I'm so grateful that this love for God's word itself is evidence to my own soul that he's claimed me. Isn't that a beautiful reassurance? If you love this book, that's testimony to your own soul that you're his. But I'm also awestricken by the God who commands with justice and power. For me to consider God only as my daddy God and to fail to see his perfect justice vindicated in his final judgment is to know God incompletely. Knowing this, how can you please this amazing God that we worship? I'm going to close with this few points. Like the psalmist, pray earnestly that God will incline your heart to his word. Read the Bible until you love reading the Bible. Does that sound circular to you? It is. It's also because you're a human being. Read the Bible until you love reading the Bible. Eliminate distractions from your study. Speak against them. Turn from them. Take action to eliminate them. That's the lesson of this psalm. Trust God for your time and your eternity. Trust God to deal with your enemies as he deals with his enemies. Celebrate God in all his revelation. Yes, love God's love, grace, and mercy. But also glorify him for his sovereignty, justice, and power. Here's the secret. You could have been somewhere else till right now. (laughs) This is all that matters. Fear of God is the secret to ridding yourself of all other fears. (laughs) I'm involved in biblical counseling. Kathy and I have been for several years, as many of you have. And I'll tell you that it is very, very seldom that you get to that point in counseling a relationship, husband and wife or parent and child or whatever, and you discover anger, which we frequently do. Anger is, seems like always part of it. But if you press, you will always find behind, for a believer, behind that anger, a fear. Fear causes believers to get angry. Fear causes us to fail in so many ways. So how can I defeat those fears? Fear God. Fear God. Obey his word. 
Fearing God will relieve you of all other threats, real or imagined, in time or in eternity. No fear. One fear. One fear. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity that uh, you give this revelation of yourself, that Heavenly Father, all men seem to want to be uh, your PR guy, to adjust it, to remove condemnation, to remove justice, to, Father, uh, make you a God that you are not. We're so grateful for the revelation you give, for the truth of who you are, for the loving God that we serve. We praise you, Father, for your grace and mercy and love. And we praise you, Father, for your sovereignty, authority, and power. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.